0: For April 20th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar pump, wind turbines.
1: We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We yeah. can still turn on our lights we've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into, related to the exhaustion of these resources,
0: there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
1: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this
0: problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. the story of the hot rod race with the fords and the linkers was setting the pace that story is true i'm here to say i was driving that model a it's got a lincoln motor and it's really souped up that model a body makes it look like a pup's got eight cylinders and uses them all got overdrive just won't stall with a four barrel carb and a dual sauce with 411 gears you can really get lost got safety tubes but i ain't scared the brakes are good tires fair out of San Pedro late one night the moon and the stars was shining bright. We was driving up a great fine hill passing cars like they was standing still. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Electric vehicles are increasingly viewed as the main pathway by which we might finally transition off of oil. A flurry of recent projections suggest that EVs might gain a 10, 20, 30% or even higher market share by 2040, and the excitement around them is palpable. From the unveiling of the long-awaited Tesla Model 3, its first EV priced for the mass market, to innovative fleet management platforms, to autonomous cars being developed by companies like Google and Apple, to old-school giants like General Motors acquiring companies with self-driving vehicle technology. An era of real innovation in cars has finally arrived after decades of relative stagnation, and it's really anybody's guess how rapidly and how far it might go. Now, I have repeatedly expressed my view that in the long run, rail would be a better way than electric cars to kick our oil habit. There are nearly 260 million light vehicles burning petroleum products in the US today, and over one billion worldwide. I think it's going to be tough to transition a fleet of that size over to electric drivetrains and nothing beats rail in terms of energy efficiency. Eventually, we'll do a show on rail as an energy transition strategy and explore those ideas. But for now, I want to give EVs a fair shake and look at how they're progressing and what they can do and how consumer attitudes toward them are changing. So today we'll be speaking with Matthew Klippenstein, an engineer with a Canadian Renewable Energy Consultancy, a writer for Green Car Reports, and a co-host of the EV-centric Cleantech Podcast. So let's bring Matthew into the conversation. Welcome, Matthew, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. So we're taping this actually on April 1st, and yesterday was the big unveiling of the Tesla Model 3, which is Tesla's first car priced for the mass market at around $35,000 with a list price, and apparently it went very well indeed. Elon Musk tweeted today that the company got 180,000 pre-orders for the Model 3 in 24 hours, which is far more than all the cars it has sold to date. And he also tweeted that they went for an average selling price, including options of around $42,000, and that the company made around $7.5 billion in sales in one day. So that's not too bad. So as a close watcher of the EV sector, what are your expectations for the Model 3, particularly considering that, as Liam Denning recently pointed out in an article for Bloomberg, There are actually already some 35 EVs on the market from all the major manufacturers, including a whole raft of new models in the same price range as the Model 3, and that that number would almost certainly double by the end of next year.
1: Sure. I think the first thing to do would be to just draw back a little bit of Elon Musk's enthusiasm there, uh, just to clarify that reservations aren't sales. In Tesla's case, I'm sure that many, many of those will become sales, as Tesla has had the foresight and the canny business plan to develop an enviable, perhaps unsurpassed cachet. But those aren't quite sales yet. I do expect that there would be some people who are putting money down to get their place in line, who may decide to go for a different electric vehicle, particularly if their timeline for delivery stretches out a little bit further than they'd like. But certainly it would take a very special vehicle indeed to beat what Tesla has unveiled and is promising for their buyers. I would expect that instead of so much taking away buyers from other vehicles, I would kind of think that the Tesla Reserver or a Reservation Holder might have already had their heart set on a Tesla, so I'm not sure if that would necessarily cut away at other automakers' sales, but it is true that if another automaker is out with a vehicle, perhaps the GM with the Volt or Nissan with the next-generation Leaf, some of the Reservers might revert back to the more mainline automakers.
0: So you don't think all these new models that are coming for EVs over the next year or so are really going to materially hurt Tesla's sales?
1: I don't think that they would materially hurt Tesla sales. I do think that Tesla has created a niche for itself as the perceived to be the Apple at the top of the line electric vehicles for the people who they're targeting. And not everyone has, you know, cars are an extraordinary broad market. A thousand different models are sold around the world each year. Most of those with different trim levels, colors, options, so on and so forth. So I think that, you know, both the other manufacturers as well as Tesla will benefit if Tesla sees delays as it has had with its previous vehicles, then I could imagine some people would decide, mm, not for me. If they are able to maintain a schedule and uh, things look good with the first vehicles that come out, I'm sure they'd be able to convert many of those reservation holders.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, long term, I am pretty bullish on EVs. A couple of years ago, I did an analysis for the state of Maryland which showed that because EVs cost about a third as much to operate as an ICE vehicle, an internal combustion engine vehicle, which is mainly because the electricity is a lot cheaper than gasoline, but also for other reasons, that they're on the verge of being at cost parity with ICE vehicles on a total cost of ownership basis. And that if you actually priced in carbon emissions and considered that gasoline prices could be higher in the future, that they're probably already at price parity. So what's your sense of the trends in in terms of the total cost of ownership?
1: I largely agree there. It's indisputable that on account of the efficiency and the lower price of electricity, that electric vehicles are much more cost effective to run. The only question is how big is your upfront extra cost relative to the savings that you accrue over time. There may be a challenge later on, not today or tomorrow, but perhaps in the 10 or 20 year time frame, when we will have the marginal cost, say, of an apartment dweller wanting to add a plug-in electric vehicle into the garage where you would have the building strata or the building council might say, hey, we don't want to spend X amount increasing the power to the building with utilities possibly crowding into the conversation as well. However, that's one of these things which is so far away that I don't think it needs to be worried about particularly much at this
0: point. Okay. Now, just to be clear, the analysis that I did a couple years ago included the upfront cost of the vehicle. So even though the vehicle costs twice as much to buy upfront as an ICE vehicle, I found that the total cost of ownership, if you included that and you included all your fuel costs, all your maintenance costs, a reasonable discount rate, and preferably priced in carbon, that over 10 years or 15 years, it would be actually cheaper in some cases to own an EV.
1: I fully agree with that. Certainly, at the moment, for most earlier adopters, or the early majority even of electric vehicle owners, the installation of a charger at home might add a small amount. Chargers are declining in price, just as batteries are. The point i was trying to make earlier was that at some point when that 20th driver in a large apartment tower wants to plug in their vehicle or wants to get a level two charger at that stage the cost of expanding infrastructure at home for that nth buyer will be somewhat higher than for the average homeowner who has say their own garage and has the ability to draw power there
0: sure another thing that Ought to work in favor of EVs, they just have a lot fewer moving parts. So the cost of maintenance should be lower over time. But when I actually tried to get data on that back in late 2013, I really couldn't find much because the vehicles were just too new. And what I did find was that the maintenance cost estimates that being put out by the usual companies like Edmunds, for example, were obviously wrong. So back in December, you looked at the owner reported reliability data on Tesla's Model S and found that some of it wasn't so good. What did you find?
1: I found some information on the Plug in America website. Plug in America is one of the leading, possibly the leading plug-in electric vehicle community or nonprofit that has been trying to raise awareness since before there were commercially available plug-in electric vehicles. And they had a owner data submission form where owners could record whether they had issues with say for Nissan Leaf their battery or for a Chevy Volt battery as well. And they also had, for the Tesla, a field where owners could indicate whether they had anything relating to their drivetrain replaced. And whereas there were only a a small number, I think five of the few hundred Nissan Leaf owners had reported issues with their battery, issues that mapped consistently with known challenges their early batteries had in hot temperatures, a lot of the, the early Tesla Model S vehicles, which had a crude um, say, uh, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 miles, a lot of those owners had reported that Tesla had replaced the vehicle. So from a reliability engineering perspective, we used a Weibull analysis, and we'd expect that for those early Teslas, about two-thirds of the drivetrains would fail within about 60,000 miles. You know, to be very clear... I'm absolutely sure that Tesla has improved its quality since then. Elon Musk has made note of it in recent quarterly conference calls. But for the earlier models, it, it would appear they had some teething issues that they had to get used to as they transitioned into you know, a, a bona fide volume manufacturer.
0: Okay, so there's no reason to think that these kind of issues would still persist with the Model 3.
1: It would be very surprising if Tesla had not solved this issue by the time the Model 3 rolled out, and it would even be surprising if they hadn't solved it with the Model X's release.
0: Okay, so apart from these Tesla models, what have you discovered in terms of, you know, typical EV maintenance costs? Because that's the data that I couldn't find.
1: I have not seen much quantitative data on EV maintenance costs, although Consumer Reports had, prior to the Tesla Tesla being its top-rated car, the Chevy Volt had that title, for two years. And the Nissan Leaf also leads its segment in its like a sized car or something like this in terms of customer satisfaction. So from that, I would infer that the ongoing maintenance costs are slim and that owners enjoy this fact. But like yourself, I haven't had the ability to find quantitative data on that.
0: All right. Fair enough. So perhaps we're just going to have to wait a little bit for the data to come in and see where we're where we really stand on that. You know, my biggest reservation about EVs is actually that they just still have such a small market share. It's still less than 1% of new vehicles sold in the U.S., roughly the same, I think, worldwide. In the U.S., they're not even close to being 1% of the fleet that's already on the road. But you've actually argued that market share is sort of a flawed metric for EV sales. Why is that?
1: So in the this early stage of the game where we're still in the first generation, just Chevy, I guess a couple of people have started to introduce their second-generation vehicles. We don't actually have a full spectrum of market offerings. To use the old expression from, I think, Alfred Sloan when he was head of GM, they want to make a car for every person, purpose. And there's not yet a plug-in for every person, purpose. Until the recent months, there hadn't been an SUV, a real SUV offered in North America at least. Mitsubishi had its outlander. Tesla, of course, has come through and Porsche and BMW now have some luxury suvs on offer and there are no trucks and trucks and suvs are a pretty sizable proportion of the overall vehicle
0: market certainly and, are the yeah, ford f-150 is still the best-selling vehicle of america
1: by a country mile yep and so to compare the ev subsegment in terms of where plug-in electric vehicles play compared to the whole market isn't really fair
0: that's true that's true but i mean we, we don't expect baba the contractor to go out and buy an ev
1: not a sedan EV for sure. Perhaps yeah. a Ford plug-in electric vehicle if he can, you know, plug in to run some tools or whatnot if he if he's uh, you know out on a remote site or something like that. So one suggestion I had was to look at the plug-in electric vehicle market share by approximate price point. And as you'd expect, the market share increases as you go up in in the numbers I crunched a few years ago. You had perhaps three percent of the market for vehicles whose base model MSRP started about thirty-five thousand not quite five percent if you went up to 40,000 and thanks to Tesla you had eight nine percent of the vehicles whose base MSRP started above 50,000. Oh that's an interesting observation yeah. So if you use the right metric the right unit of measure then you can really see where the promising parts are. To riff on hybrids for example you know Toyota's about the only car maker who has really gone into hybrids uh, heavy duty hardcore in the past 15 years partly because they own all the IP and it's kind of embarrassing if you have to license your IP from them. Hmm. And so while worldwide hybrid sales are maybe 2%, maybe 3% uh, a couple of years ago of worldwide sales, they were about 12% of Toyota's sales in recent years. And so in terms of foreseeing how if the electric vehicle market could grow i could certainly imagine that with several automakers following with determination on electric vehicles maybe you can see maybe you know 10 15 years from day 1 when they sell their first first generation model maybe some of them can get to that 10% mark perhaps more if they're luxury makers
0: right so when we're talking about market share we really ought to segment the market and then talk about it that way
1: yeah, it's a bit like talking about, say, the cost of oil versus a marginal barrel cost. The latter gives you a lot more nuance and perspective as to how to see the rest of the data.
0: Yeah, okay, that's fair. You know, I don't think many people realize that Norway actually has the highest share of EV sales of any country on Earth. Their EVs take more than a fifth of the market and have for several years now. And this is primarily, as I understand it, because Norway's very high vehicle taxes are waived for plug-in electric vehicles, which makes them effectively cheaper than many ICE alternatives. Now, you noted in an article two years ago that EVs had reached 1% of the total fleet of passenger cars in Norway and speculated that they might reach 2% by January of this year. So did they?
1: They hit 3% in December, so yeah, they kind of overachieved on that. Admittedly, Norway is a rare case where everything comes together properly, but uh, (laughs) perhaps speaking to the total cost of ownership figures that you noted, there will certainly be a wave one expects where there will be a much faster, say, S-curve kind of an adoption for uh, plug-in electric vehicles. I imagine it's a sticker price parity issue, where humans aren't really good at discounting and so on and so forth, but as soon as the cost up front just begins to approach the comparable internal combustion vehicle, I could imagine that many, many people would start to vote with their dollar.
0: Yeah, that's an important observation there. Working with the discount rate was an important part of the cost parity analysis that I did a couple of years ago for Maryland. And it's not something that most people understand, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So... Last year, you reported on a 2015 study by researchers at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, which surveyed mainstream buyers in 2013 and found that about a third of them would be willing to buy a plug-in hybrid, but that when you considered the lack of a home charger, the lack of a selection of EVs or the certain models that they liked at dealerships, the lack of an option with their preferred manufacturer, if they're loyal to a particular brand – and a general lack of familiarity with EVs on the whole, actually took that number of people who would be willing to buy an EV all the way down to 1%. Since EVs have become significantly more common now over the last couple of years, do you think those numbers have changed and is the potential market finally growing?
1: I am absolutely sure those numbers have increased radically and rapidly and The SFU study is intended to be a part of a longitudinal study spanning years and decades. So it will be so very cool for a data fiend like myself, like yourself, and probably for many of the listeners to see how this latent demand evolves from 30% back in 2013. You know, the Tesla Model S had just come out. To the figure it is now, I would be surprised if it wasn't above 50% just in terms of random conversations I have with colleagues, co-workers, friends, and so on and so forth. I think that in terms of bringing the sales up, there will be, as I noted earlier, that uh, question of home charging access. In British Columbia, we have perhaps a third of residents live in multi-unit housing, which means it may not always be possible to do your own thing without asking others' permission with respect to a battery. But looking at the U.S. census data, for example, it would seem like only about 20% of people perhaps live in buildings with five or more dwellings. And if you're in townhouses or or single unit housing, then that's almost an exact Pareto. The first 80% take 20% of the effort in terms of, hey, you know, I've got a garage or I've got a a parking spot. I should be able to wire myself up to do some charging at home.
0: Yeah. And Among the various initiatives that I'm seeing now coming out of various public utility commissions, they're really focusing in on that specific issue of having charges available at multi-unit dwellings.
1: In my home province of British Columbia, the government did recently announce a rebate of up to $4,500, up to 75%, I think, of the cost of chargers for multi-unit dwellings, in the realization that, yes, foresight now will be important to ensure that we don't lose those people who want to buy a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, but are worried about having to petition fellow condo owners to have the permission to do so. So I think it's a very good step and hopefully we'll see that the proportion of people constrained by home charging decreases over time.
0: Yeah. In September 2014, you published a little study showing that when a $5,000 subsidy for EVs expired in British Columbia, sales fell relative to other Canadian provinces where subsidies are still in force. And you speculated that BC might have sold twice as many EVs if the subsidy had remained in place. So given that all the major EV manufacturers, including Tesla, are now looking to introduce vehicles in the thirty dollars to $35,000 range, competitive with conventional ICE vehicles, how much longer do you think subsidies will be needed to sustain EV sales?
1: Sure. So just before heading to the answer on that question, just as a side note, British Columbia did recently uh, return the incentives. And if we lump the Volt and Leaf numbers together, the sales rose back to their earlier proportion relative to these other two provinces of Ontario and Quebec.
0: Well, that's interesting in and of itself.
1: Yes. So it it gives us this sort of demand elasticity of what does $5,000 do for the number of people who are buying these vehicles right. and these data sets i think that's like 13 months here 13 months without and then like eight months with the incentives back and then more interestingly especially on the data side british columbia just this past month announced that electric vehicle owners would get access to hov lanes so i'm hoping that in perhaps six month time we'll be able to tease out at least for British Columbia, what is the value that $5,000 equals in terms of electric vehicle sales? And what is the incremental or additional value you get from HOV lane access? Right. I'm sure that wouldn't necessarily apply elsewhere, but it would be so exciting to see just what the ratio of those drivers is.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that would be really interesting to be able to just have a very discrete number for each one of those things
1: getting to your question now, I don't think that subsidies will be needed to sustain electric vehicle sales as we get the pure battery electric vehicles with the 200-mile, 300-kilometer range in the approximate price parity with your mid-range combustion vehicle. At the same time, I'm, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have subsidies. I think societies do have the have the right to try to uh, correct for market distortions if they so choose but i do think that this having a 3 in front of the car sticker price as opposed to a 4 i think it's a it is a psychological enabler for many purchasers
0: yeah i think you're right about that i mean it's pretty clear that it needs to be in that range if it's going to work so in sharp contrast to bc you detailed in an article you wrote in february that a quite generous program of subsidies is available in Ontario. That province is now going to pay rebates that scale with the size of the battery and the cost of the car, from $6,000 rebate for a 5-kilowatt-hour battery to $10,000 rebate for a 16-kilowatt-hour battery, and then there's additional incentives on top of that. So the incentive for the new Tesla Model 3 would actually be $14,000 which would basically cut the cost of the car in half or close to it if you went for a base model. So this is a lot of money. Where is it coming from to pay these rebates in Ontario? And, And what leads Ontario to be so progressive about supporting EVs while BC is offering so little?
1: Yeah, that's just as a a quick note, thanks to the Canadian peso, as we like to refer to it over here, (laughs) the $35,000 Tesla could be somewhere approaching $50,000 in Canadian terms. Ah, Still, $14,000 on that, you're you're easily looking at something in the one quarter of the price, 25, 30% range. So it would definitely help and it would definitely position the Tesla in that sweet spot that we think is necessary for expansive, quick adoption. In terms of Ontario's budgetary priorities, I can't speak for the leadership of the province, but the premier was the transport minister at the time the initial rebates were allotted in Ontario several years ago, and so she may have a particular uh, interest in the file. Ontario has decided, I think uh, the governing party, did make a very determined decision to embrace clean energy, clean technology as its path for economic growth. Closing its coal plants did have the impact emissions-wise of something on the order of a 100 to $130 per tonne carbon tax. And if we very roughly ballpark the kinds of emissions reductions we might expect, you're probably uh, you know somewhat modestly above that in terms of avoided tons of CO2 emissions. But then, you have fewer dollars leaving the provincial borders for oil from other provinces and elsewhere. I'm delighted that they've made that a priority, and I'm modest enough to realize they can't go the full Norway.
0: The full Norway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically, it's you know, they've just got some very progressive leadership there in Ontario.
1: Yes, I think uh, both Ontario and the new Canadian federal government seem to have decided that they want to try to do what they think is the right thing, they have decided to do what they think is the right thing and not obsess over annual sort of budgetary fluctuations, yeah. which is kind of admirable, at least if you happen to agree with their determined priorities.
0: So, for at least a decade now, I've heard various market watchers worry that there might not be sufficient lithium supplies to build a very large number of electric vehicles as hoped. But that concern seems a bit muted now, and I think it's because people are realizing there's just more lithium supply at an acceptable price than we once thought. In a recent Bloomberg article, which we'll link to in the show notes, Liam Denning noted that a Nissan LEAF with a 24-kilowatt-hour battery contains the equivalent of 45 pounds of lithium carbonate, and that at that average price last year of $6,800 per tonne, the Leaf's lithium cost is only about 140 bucks or half the percent of the sticker price of the car. So he said that the cheapest supplies today in which lithium is extracted from evaporated seawater in the giant salt flats of Chile's Atacama Desert are less than a half of that at $2,000 to $3,000 per ton. And that prices could rise to $9,000 a ton next year as EV sales tick up. So all in all, we've got a ripe opportunity for investors, it seems, but maybe not a material shortage that would inhibit the deployment of EVs. Does that match up with what your understanding is?
1: Yeah, I would categorize concerns about the availability of uh, lithium as the kind of 10, 20-year from now problems that we can worry about if we reach those bridges. Hmm. When I was growing up, I, I would occasionally hear people saying, well, there's not enough copper in the world to give a landline to everyone in China. And lithium is, for the time being and for the foreseeable future, it will be the dominant cation in battery technology. But I would not foresee this being some sort of a material shortage issue. It's 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 one of the most abundant elements in the Earth's crust, for crying out loud.
0: It sounds like it's relatively affordable if you consider it as a percentage of the vehicle's cost.
1: Oh, absolutely. If If it came to a price war i'm sure that the automakers could well afford to squeeze out other users who might be more flexible in terms of finding substitute materials Hmm. i would add perhaps one note that the availability of reasonably large quantities of lithium does appear to be tight some friends who are working on lithium-ion batteries themselves have reported difficulties finding a decent supply because LG and Samsung have wrapped up all the vendors that they've approached with long-term supply contracts. So hmm. again, one of these investor opportunities, not so much a worry and depression slash psychologist kind of a business opportunity.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Let's talk about Toyota. Toyota was the first car manufacturer to launch a successful gasoline hybrid vehicle and the Prius quickly became the category leader. But the company has now lagged behind other manufacturers in the pure EV category. Why do you think that is?
1: I think the hybrid leadership aspect and being the leader in hybrids but not in battery electric vehicles, you could think of that as the, uh, the innovator's dilemma kind of situation where Toyota has done so well with hybrids that why would it divert attention and time towards a battery technology? The other aspect is that Toyota is absolutely in love with fuel cells. I could I could imagine perhaps a few reasons why that might be the case, but in doing so, they've made quite strong and uh, inflammatory in the uh, in the mind of the electric vehicle community statements about their preference for fuel cells. So uh, those two reasons I would imagine would explain their laggard status.
0: Interesting, because that's something also that I wanted to talk about. You know, up until recently the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle was considered to be the big next alternative to, to ICE vehicles. That's all that we ever heard about from elected officials. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you remember California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's hydrogen highway plan and President George W. Bush's hydrogen economy initiative. And you know Everybody's talking about fuel cell vehicles. Nobody talked about EVs until just, well, really, probably until Tesla came around. Why do you think hydrogen fuel cells were so much more heavily favored by officials and policymakers and 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 Toyota for that matter, and why have e v s actually turned out to be more successful in the market?
1: I think, and this is interesting to me because I worked at a hydrogen fuel cell manufacturer during those those heady years <laughs> when when one year's worth of stock options erased my student debt, and I was just happy enough to have that off my back. <laughs> I think the appeal of hydrogen vehicles to lawmakers at the time and also to Toyota today relates to the, the fact that as long as there's infrastructure, there's no behavioral change required. It is often easy to assume that what you're willing to undergo in terms of behavior change that others will easily follow. Perhaps the best example I can give from my personal life is, you know, I was a vegetarian for a number of years. I married a non-vegetarian. I am no longer non-vegetarian and people would ask me about it, and I'd say, well, it's not really a big deal. You just you know, just, you know, just eat these things and not these other things. I wasn't vegan, mind you.
0: Was it the bacon? Was it the bacon that did it?
1: It, it wasn't the bacon, actually. Uh, <laughs> curiously enough, I've, I've lost my taste for red meat. I've tried to eat like really nice steaks and stuff like that, and I can eat a few bites, and then somehow it, I've lost my taste for it. It, okay. is, it is very bizarre.
0: Well, from what I hear, bacon is the gateway meat.
1: I'm sure it is. I'm 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 sure it is. <laughs> they They make sure that tofu-based imitation sausage and bacon has that kind of a fatty smell. That's for sure. <laughs> but anyway, you often have advocates of a particular endeavor saying, hey, it's totally easy to change, and often they're surprised that other people won't change. In the case of electric vehicles, I think it's pretty easy given the, as you mentioned, the running cost advantages of simply plugging your car in at night – as opposed to occasionally going to filling station. Or if you have a plug-in hybrid vehicle, you know, plugging in at night and then very rarely going to a gasoline stand.
0: So you feel it was really about behavioral modifications that would be required to drive a vehicle with a shorter range?
1: That would explain why the advisors to Bush and Schwarzenegger would have embraced hydrogen. Because it's relatively rare for consumers to en masse change their preferences and behavior choice. The iPhone without the keyboard, without the physical keyboard, is your perfect example of a case where people did transition to a different behavior. I would imagine that with electric vehicles, people will also transition to that other behavior. But nowadays, I think that there could be other reasons for Toyota's preference for fuel cells, one of them relating to the fact that, for example, Japan is an islanded grid. It's actually a network of sort of little grid fiefdoms, and there could be historical reasons for Japan not wanting to tie itself too closely to China or South Korea and vice versa. So for an energy importer, then I could imagine that having the ability to store you know, massive tanks of hydrogen, however inefficient that is, the, the peace of mind that it would give would allow Japanese engineers and planners to think, hey, hydrogen, way to go. Broadly speaking, I don't think those circumstances arise in the rest of the world. So while I do think that there are niches and areas where hydrogen could be, and I guess eventually will be, a supporting role player to battery electric vehicles, it's hard to see that being the dominant case, seeing as they're being outsold by a factor of like a thousand or something like
0: that. But by the same token, the infrastructure to deliver electricity to any place where a vehicle might be has already been in place for a very long time. And the infrastructure to deliver well, probably natural gas to some place where there might have to be installed a reformer that would then give you a hydrogen supply that you could use to charge up your vehicle is not nearly as ubiquitous as electricity. So basically, you're making the argument that, at least in the minds of policymakers, the behavioral advantage was so much bigger than the fact that you'd have to actually build all this additional infrastructure for refueling.
1: That and the fact that 12 years ago, 15 years ago, the likelihood of a battery electric vehicle having the range that we see today would have probably been the other factor there. Ah, So if you're thinking of the EV1, I mean, I would have probably bought the vehicle if my wife would have let me, but it had, I think, what 60 to 80 miles of range. It didn't use lithium-ion technology. Lithium-ion batteries were, at the time, phenomenally expensive, thanks to learning curve effects, they're far, far cheaper now. I think the behavior change of accepting a vehicle with less than 100 miles range or possibly less than 100 mile range is, is probably the other factor that would have said, hey, if we actually scale this hydrogen stuff, you get the same range and you just fuel up at a station, somehow magically oil companies will see the light and, and install uh, you know something to expand their markets, presto. As it turns out, it's as, as is so often the case, slow and steady wins the race. So the slow, steady improvements that lithium-ion batteries have had over the years, combined with the ubiquitous charging infrastructure that just exists everywhere in society, have kind of pulled far ahead of the moonshot hydrogen vision that some some espoused.
0: Yeah, and it really speaks to how much progress we've actually managed to make in battery costs in just a decade. Mm-hmm. Pretty remarkable, actually.
1: Yes, yes, it is. I would note that Toyota would probably argue that it's seeing faster fuel cell production cost declines. That's partly a factor of the fact that fuel cells are such a small market that, for example, the Mirai 700 units probably roughly doubled the size of the entire fuel cell industry in terms of square meters of PEM fuel cells Mm. last year. And Mm. that's if they actually hit those 700 units. But yes, for many reasons, the lithium ion has become the dominant paradigm.
0: Do you think there's still a role for hydrogen vehicles?
1: I do, and I'm sure that people will say, oh, he used to work in hydrogen, so he's a, he's he's sentimental or something of that sort. I do think that in until you get building stock turnover, seeing as your building stock tends to be the longest-lasting stuff in society, lasting 30, 50 years, something of that sort, it would take a very long time to go from the point where all new buildings have charger infrastructure available for every person parking, this is in multi-unit dwellings, to the point where everyone would have the ability to charge up at home. For that reason, I think that there's a medium-term opportunity for fuel cells, not just in the heavy trucking side, where the weight of a battery might prove somewhat difficult to justify for an 18-wheeler, but also in the multi-unit housing segment, where in Norway, for example, this, this will be a very interesting thing to watch, is that Will there be a point where Norwegian buildings, which generally don't have underground parking lots, will there be a point where the growth of the electric vehicle market starts to get constrained by the ability of people to secure on-street parking with chargers? Again, that could be many years away. It's not really worth worrying about, but that's the, the niche that I can see that the fuel cells would dominate. That plus the fact that people have any number of reasons for buying vehicles, and I could imagine that. Some people who just don't like Elon Musk, for example, might decide just to buy a fuel cell just to spite him.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, it seems to me that that still leaves open the possibility, at least for fuel cells, that there might be a real market in like fleet vehicles, delivery vehicles or other sorts of fleet vehicles where you've got total control over when they're used, how they're used, how far they go, where they refuel, where they all park at night, that kind of thing. But then at the same time, I see a lot of opportunity for EVs in that very same fleet vehicle market. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, so again, I'd just like to emphasize, I'm not trying to secretly say that fuel cells will will stage an improbable come-from-behind victory or anything of that sort, but I would imagine that just as every driver is unique, and so I would imagine there would be use cases where fuel cells could fill a niche. One example is the fact that Walmart and a variety of other big-box retailers are using a fuel cell-powered forklifts at their warehouses, and the reason for that is that the the space it takes to maintain a battery bay might be perhaps 10% of your floor space. The space required to put in some refueling is maybe 2%. So effectively, you can make each of your warehouses 8% bigger, some to that effect. And that means you have far less to spend in terms of capital costs when you do expansion. Hmm. I could imagine that for a Walmart, for a Home Depot, for another big box retailer, perhaps even an Amazon that if you had hydrogen stored on site at your distribution center, then your truck, which is delivering from your distribution center to your store, it's probably not all that different, you could refuel that using the same hydrogen. You could kind of take advantage of the infrastructure there. And then uh, perhaps the store, if the fuel cells are able to get to the cost, where the stores could use them for pallet jacks and, and whatnot. In the case, I guess, where time equals money, then I could imagine that the increased cost of the fuel... ...and the infrastructure could be offset by the perceived or real increase in the productivity gain. So I would see that that would be a way that fuel cells could emerge in corporate fleets... ...where there's already some sort of advantage that they enjoy. Certainly for most corporate company fleets, electric vehicles are an absolute no-brainer. You rarely drive long distances. The vehicles can be charged nice slow rates overnight... You might not even need a Level 2 charger, for that matter, because you can take advantage of the weekend. And certainly for most corporate fleets, organizational fleets, I could imagine that electric vehicles would have an easy win.
0: You know, I've been thinking a lot about the pace of change in technology and in consumer devices. You know, if you think about how rapidly the cell phone market has evolved, how rapidly the entertainment market has evolved from going from VHS tapes to DVDs to on-demand stuff streaming over the internet, Netflix and so on. If you think about the pace of innovation of just sort of other consumer appliances, washing machines and so on, this stuff can actually all change pretty darn quickly if you've got a good value proposition. But it seems like cars just don't change that quickly. I mean, it's, it's really been a very slow process to get consumers to think about giving up their ICE vehicles and switching to EVs. The design of the car hasn't changed very much. The way it works, the way that they work together, I mean, even this really promising concept of autonomous vehicles and all the things that you can do with that, seems like it's got a really slow, tough path ahead of it to, to get traction. Why do you think cars change so much more slowly than other consumer devices?
1: for that i would have to riff in biology and reference Kleber's law i might be mispronouncing might be kleiber since the guy was a, a swiss i think and what kleiber noticed is that the larger a mammal gets the slower its heart rate is and so you have these phenomena where you know a mouse might have like a a couple year lifespan whereas the gestation period for a whale or an elephant is is a year or more and Unlike smartphones, unlike most consumer electronics, cars are an order of magnitude more expensive, possibly more. And so I think there's this similar effect where everything slows down. The cost of development of a vehicle is easily into billions of dollars. The time frames are long. You typically have a five or six year models or refresh rate or redesign rate. And so... Relative to so many things that we experience now with electronics, there's an almost geological time frame that the automotive sector seems to go through. So I think that is ultimately why. I think that if, if cars cost $1,000 each, then well people would buy more of them more frequently, and you'd have the kinds of profits that car makers could then plow into radically new designs, radically improved specs, and so on and so forth. With the auto industry as it is, though, with vehicles probably costing on average $30,000 or more, with a fleet average age of about 10, 11 years, which typically means your average car is going to be on the road for maybe 20 years, then time slows down. You know, it's kind of an Einsteinian thing, perhaps. And so as much as we would love to see change, then... There is a bit of patience necessary or or understanding. It's, it's good to be impatient. But there's an understanding necessary that the amount of change is going to be more frustrating to us advocates and enthusiasts than we'd like. If we count in terms of car generations, though, I think that gives a, a nicer perspective in that we have, say, Nissan, for example, have its LEAF come out. They uh, then put together an electric version of their delivery vehicle they're now rumored to be doing a crossover as well as the next generation leaf. Tesla is moving forward generationally with the S slash X and then on to the Model 3. And when we think of it in terms of these generations, then the further along you get in the timeline, the more vehicles the automotive company is able to slot that technology into. And thus, the more sales you can get, the more ubiquitous you can get electric vehicle technology. So, yeah, it's it's a thing which tests one's patience and we shouldn't be too patient, but one must understand the rate of change in an industry where the product is just so expensive.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting thought. I I hadn't really thought about it that way, but yeah, it could very well be that, you know, as we proceed into this energy transition broadly speaking, that we should expect the large systems to change slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Matthew.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: We'll have to have you back on the show as the market evolves and give us a little update on what you think things look like a couple of years from now. We'd love to. That was Matthew Klippenstein, an engineer with the Canadian Renewable Energy Consultancy, a writer for Green Car Reports, and a co-host of the EV-centric Clean Tech Talk podcast. I hope that interview answered some of the common questions that people have about EVs and hinted at the opportunity that there is in that market, even if we didn't really touch on the self-driving angle, which is a whole other topic we'll have to get into in a future show. But EVs are a real and rapidly emerging transition strategy, and we should be paying close attention to them. Even though they're starting from a low base at less than 1% of the fleet and less than 1% of sales, they have numerous advantages that give them an edge in the market, And like the transition from conventional generators to coal in the grid power sector, once they gain traction and start taking real market share, they're going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to stop. Transition skeptics often say to me, beware of scale. And I hear that, loud and clear. But my response is, yes, and beware of double-digit growth rates. Indeed, if you ignore the questions around consumer acceptance and policy and incentives and charging infrastructure and all that, and just look at the data – the value proposition for EVs is clear. First, an EV with a 30 kilowatt hour battery, such as the 2016 Nissan LEAF, stores as much electricity as the average US residence consumes in a day. That could be a real challenge for grid operators to manage if they don't prepare for it, but if they do prepare for it, it could be an amazingly powerful demand response asset that could actually optimize the rest of the grid and reduce grid power costs for everyone. I have co-authored a report about this for my job at the Rocky Mountain Institute, which will be out in a few months. Second, supplying enough electricity to power all those vehicles isn't actually all that unreasonable. According to a rough calculation by Peter O'Connor of the Union of Concerned Scientists, if all light-duty vehicles in the U.S. were replaced with EVs, they would only require about 1,000 terawatt-hours of additional electricity per year, or an increase of about one-quarter over our current electricity demand. Third, mobility as a service is the new hotness in transportation, and there are some very interesting plays and players working in that space to figure out new ways of getting us from point A to point B without having to actually own a vehicle. Some of the projects underway are showing incredible promise, where electric vehicles and the infrastructure needed to support them are seeing very high utilization rates, meaning that the whole system operates much, much more efficiently than a fleet of personally owned vehicles ever would. And that means that the whole thing can be run at a much lower cost. In a future where many observers believe that more of us will be living in urban centers, taking advantage of the so-called sharing economy, and maybe even riding around in cars that drive themselves while we do something more useful or interesting than just watching the road, EVs have huge potential.
1: Now I used to think that I was cool
0: running around on fossil fuel until I saw what I was doing was driving down the road to ruin. Do you enjoy the energy transition show enough to buy me a beer once a month as a way of saying thanks? If so, since it's a little impractical for all of you to actually physically buy me a beer in person, although I would love that, then would you consider paying $5 a month for a subscription to this show? We aim to produce a very high quality product, and it takes a good deal of time and effort to do that. At some point, perhaps later this fall, we will be looking to start bringing in revenue in order to make all this effort sustainable and keep putting out a quality product. And we'd rather do that on a subscription basis, if possible, than subject our listeners to more bloody advertising. So, if you value this show enough to pay $5 a month for it, which would give you access to two full episodes per month plus some other goodies, we'd like to hear from you. Or if you have other price points in mind or other ideas, we'd like to hear those too. You can send us a note using the comment form at the bottom of each episode's page, or just drop me an email to chris at energytransitionshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Since we recorded episode 14 on China, in which I had mused about the difficulty some of its large wind and solar projects have had in getting connected to the grid, that problem appears to be headed for a solution. According to Reuters, China's National Energy Administration has ordered power transmission companies to provide grid connectivity for all renewable power generation sources to put an end to the bottleneck that has left a large amount of its new renewable power projects sitting idle. The grid companies have been ordered to plug in all renewable power sources that comply with their technical standards. So, a point for our guest James West from episode 14 who called that correctly. Item two. As another follow-up to the China episode, Greenpeace says that according to reports in the Chinese press, the National Energy Agency will tell 28 of China's 31 mainland provinces that they should suspend approvals for new coal plants. The country already has an estimated 20% overcapacity in coal power plants. Earlier this year, the government announced that it would stop building already approved coal plants in 15 provinces and stop opening new coal mines until 2019. Greenpeace believes that the new policy would halt 90% of coal power plants currently seeking approval, but that it will not stop some 210 coal-fired power plants with a total capacity of 168 gigawatts that were granted approval last year. Item 3. Last month, GM bought San Francisco startup Cruise Automation, which will help it develop self-driving cars. While self-driving car technology doesn't almost even qualify as news anymore, I thought this was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, the reported $1 billion acquisition shows that the traditional car business is very serious about autonomous vehicles. They clearly believe that they need to get on board with the technology, lest they be left in the dust by the likes of Google and Apple. And two, they specifically said that they were looking to position their self-driving cars for ride-sharing fleets. My own research suggests that such fleets are definitely going to be a sweet spot for autonomous vehicles, and particularly autonomous electric vehicles. And although I have been a skeptic about the potential for EVs based on their small market share, fleet applications could provide a sudden and very significant deployment of EVs and finally make them significant players in energy transition. Item 4. Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia has announced a plan to create a $2 trillion sovereign wealth fund, which would be more than twice as large as any other sovereign wealth fund. The so-called public investment fund would be funded by selling shares in the kingdom's oil company, Aramco, via an IPO that could happen as soon as next year. The prince intends to use the fund to diversify investments so that in 20 years the kingdom will not depend mainly on oil for income. The creation of the fund follows on from a series of measures announced as part of a so-called national transformation plan, which sounds a bit like an energy transition plan to me, including reducing subsidies for fuel and electricity in an effort to close the budget deficit that has exploded in the recent price collapse. And finally, item five. California grid power officials announced that the state could actually face rolling blackouts for as many as 14 days this summer as a consequence of the leaking Aliso Canyon Natural Gas Storage Facility, the fourth largest underground gas reserve of its kind. The massive four-month leak forced residents in nearby Porter Ranch from their homes, some complaining of headaches and nosebleeds, and Governor Brown ordered gas injections in the storage facility to be halted until the operator can ensure that the wells are safe. The Southern California electricity grid is very dependent on the gas stored there to fuel its gas-fired generators, according to a detailed multi-agency study, and a cascading series of system dependencies could lead some generators to being unable to get fuel. The state has released an 18-point action plan to address the issue, which it believes will reduce the risk of blackouts. But I think what's most instructive about the Aliso Canyon problem is that Southern California became so dependent on natural gas generation in the first place, in part as a consequence of closing the 2.2 gigawatt San Onofre nuclear plant in 2012. And that closure was necessary because it was a very large and very old power plant that turned out to be very expensive to fix once its parts started wearing out. And so here's the key lesson. It's now possible to generate clean power from solar and wind at a lower cost per kilowatt and at a far lower capital cost than big nuclear plants. Solar and wind are also much faster to build and much cheaper to maintain and replace. San Onofre could have been entirely replaced by wind and solar at a very acceptable price, and the risk of solar and wind systems is next to nothing. For one thing, their fuel will never leak or run out. Now, I understand why California felt like it had to switch quickly to gas to replace the enormous loss of San Onofre's capacity, but in hindsight, it seems they traded one very large single point of failure for another, when an alternative based on distributed wind and solar would have left California in a far more resilient position today. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.